Welcome to episode 34 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. Even though there was just a UFC Fight Night event this week and there was no UFC coming up next week, there was a lot of other stuff that happened in the martial arts world this week, and as a result, this is actually going to be the most packed episode I've had so far. This is going to be 15 topics in total. So to go from top to bottom, what those topics will be, first off, we'll start with the main event at UFC Busan or UFC Korea, and that was the win from Korean Zombie over Frankie Edgar. I'll then recap the entire card. We'll talk about Henry Cejudo dropping his flyweight title and having Joseph Benavides and, De- and Davison Figueredo now fighting for that vacant title in February. Derek Lewis had a viral video of him beating up a guy who was titled as a boxer. So I'll talk about that and uh, give my recap on that. I already put out a video this week, and it seems as though a lot of people didn't make it through the entire thing, and they sort of misconstrued what my point on that was. So I'll, I'll recap that, and I, I'm sure by the time we get to that topic, people, the people who are still who are still around will at least listen to me and listen to the entire point, and maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but at least at least give me a chance to make to explain what I what I see there. Uh, then Kevin Lee was announced to be speaking at a Bernie Sanders event that happened uh, today on Saturday. So I'll be recapping that. Kamaru Usman, after winning against Colby Covington, put up a tweet saying that he wants to go to the White House. So I'll talk about that. Colby Covington, news just came out about him not receiving any pay-per-view points on the on the deal that he negotiated for that fight with Kamaru Usman. Uh, so just talking about whether or not he got screwed there, whether he just decided to take a bigger guarantee and wasn't willing to take a risk on himself and that didn't end up paying out for him. Then UFC announced they are returning their pay-per-view price back to $65. It used to be $65. Last year, they moved with ESPN Plus and made it $60. Uh, although, if you're already paying $5 a month, then I guess you're still paying $65 for UFC content. But now it's back to $65, and you're still having to pay for ESPN Plus. Robert Whitaker had his fight announced against Jared Cannonier for UFC 248. There was some talk of other opponents for both of them. Cannonier possibly could have been jumping in for a title fight with Yoel Romero seeming to be the, the best option right now for Adesanya with Paul Boachinia out and Romero having a few losses. And then Robert Whitaker was being talked about as an opponent for Darren Till. Obviously, neither of those fights will happen now, or at least not right away. The U.S. Open slash USA Wrestling Senior National Tournament is taking place right now. We're all the way through, through to the finals. The finals will take place, I believe, on around 5 o'clock on Sunday. And since I'm recording this before that's happening, I'm, I'll talk about what happened prior to the finals and then after the finals are done. Sort of like what happened last week where the Nogi Worlds for Jiu-Jitsu. I just did a separate video once that was over. I'll, I'll do the same thing here. We'll, where at least here I'll talk about all, all the matches leading up to the finals, but then for a full recap with the finals included, that'll be its own separate thing. Then there's a legal battle between Willie Saylor, who uh, was one of Flo's top journalists for a long time and uh, top personalities for a long time as well. He quit prior to the college wrestling season and has been working sort of like freelance with a with a site called Rockfin, and Flo is trying to keep him from doing that, so I'll talk about that. Then we have some more wrestling news on top of that. So Kyle Dake, who is a multiple-time world champion, uh, has a win over Jordan Burroughs, although he wasn't able to beat him best two out of three to make the team that year. Um, but he put up a video of him hitting some mitts, and talking about how after the Olympics, after this Olympic cycle, he's thinking about moving into MMA. So I'll talk about that and whether or not I think that's he's just kind of just trolling for attention, or whether or not I think he's actually planning on doing that. Because if he is, he would easily be one of the the best prospects ever from wrestling to come over to MMA. Uh, then Gable Stevenson, uh, a guy who's sort of hinted that he may be interested in MMA himself, although he's a, a true sophomore right now in college. He was pretty memorable in the MMA community for working out Brock Lesnar when the Lesnar versus Cormier fight was being talked about. 
but he was being held out of competition for a, a, a pending charge for sexual conduct that ended up not only was the charge, I wouldn't even say the charge was dropped. The charge, the charges were never filed. They just found there to be insufficient evidence, and as a result, he just made his season debut yesterday. Uh, there are a handful of new, of recent UFC releases, so I'll just go through that list and talk about some of the ones I think are more surprising and what to take from that. And the final topic, the fifteenth topic, will be Rory McDonald, who I didn't realize had his contract run out with Bellator, but he just signed with the PFL, and that announcement is being made. Uh, a little under 10 days before the PFL's big year-end event, uh, so the timing for them ended up working out pretty well. Back to the top, we have the Korean Zombie versus Frankie Edgar, and this fight was just not competitive at all. Prior to this fight, I actually thought it would be competitive, and I thought there was a decent chance for Edgar to get the win here. Uh, I just figured that Edgar would be able to, to mix in the takedowns and be effective in that realm, but for him... For him to make the takedowns effective, he had to at least be effective on the feet prior to that, and he never really had a chance to do that. He got stung pretty quickly in this fight, got dropped, and then when he was dropped, uh, the Korean Zombie was able to, to swarm on top of him, did a really good job of getting his back, belled him out a couple times where I thought the fight was over, uh, but he was able to find a way out, find a way to keep going, and eventually he gets back to his feet, gets dropped again, and at that point Mark Goddard had seen enough and he decided to stop the fight. There were some comments that I saw online where they were saying, hey, if you're going to stop the Colby fight so quickly, why are you letting this one go? I'm sure Mark Goddard got plenty of crap for the way that the Colby fight ended, and as a result may have looked at this fight and said, hey, I've already made that mistake once. I don't have to make that mistake over and over again. So I don't see this as a case where Mark Goddard was like out to screw Colby Covington, but here he was like trying to give Frankie a fair, a fair shake at it. If anything, if you're going to connect the two, I would say that a lesson was learned from the Colby fight, and he, he made sure to apply it here. So I, I wouldn't say that... This like proves that Colby got screwed over. So, or I guess if you already felt that Colby got screwed over, I'm not sure this, that this would change it. But some people are trying to make a conspiracy out of it. I don't see a conspiracy here. I, I just see someone who learned a lesson from a previous fight, gave Frankie Edgar an ample ample opportunity. Anytime Edgar was getting stuck in position, he would say, hey, look, man, I need you to move. I need you to move. Frankie would move. He'd find ways to improve the position. Eventually got out, which was pretty good for him. Um, but once he got dropped again, it was pretty clear that that fight needed to be stopped, and it was. So as far as where they go from here... Edgar was supposed to be fighting in about a month from now against Corey Sandhagen. I don't see how you could possibly make that fight still. You probably have to take Edgar out of it. There's a lot of talk prior to this where they were saying that it was the wrong move for the UFC to do this, to take Edgar out of that Sandhagen fight because it's screwing over Sandhagen. I would imagine that they had assumed that this would be a possibility beforehand, and they probably are looking at some other people who could be jumping in for Edgar uh, if he's not ready in time. They just haven't made that announcement because obviously if Edgar were to get through this without getting injured, then he keeps his fight and all is well. So there'd be no reason to make a public announcement there, but I'm sure they've looked into that. And obviously, if you're making an event in Korea, you want to have the Korean zombie on top of the card. You want to have him fighting someone who's relevant and make it a fight where he can actually like do something good for his career. So if if Edgar was the best option they had left on short notice, then I I really don't see an issue with them making this fight in the first place. So for Edgar, if his plan is to move back down to 35 anyway, then a loss at 45, does it really damage him? I mean, no. Because he's going to lose the Sandhagen fight, maybe you could say that the guy who he's most likely to get next probably isn't going to be ranked as high as Sandhagen, so the upside won't be there. But I really don't see this being too damaging for Edgar. I think the plan still is going to be to go back down to 35. He definitely looked smaller than the Korean Zombie in this fight. Uh, looks slower, which wasn't exactly a good thing, especially if you're going down in weight. Typically, you're going to have higher speeds at lower weight. Uh, so that that could be a bit an area of concern. But I think at this point for Frankie Edgar, if we were being honest, I, I don't know that the expectations there that he was going to win a title at 135 anyway. 
the expectation would probably be he'd still be a, a high-ranking contender there, and losing to Korean Zombie at 145 doesn't mean you can't be a top contender at 135. So for Edgar, kind of a tough way to lose, tough to fly halfway across the world and have that happen to you, but hopefully he got paid well and he, he can relax for the holidays. He's not going to have a fight in January, so I guess he can relax a, relax a little bit longer than that as well. Uh, for the Korean Zombie, he called out Volkanovski after this. Is that a fight that makes sense? I, I think you could argue that the Holloway fight would still make sense just because of Holloway's long winning streak at featherweight. I think it would be fair to him to, to give him another shot there. I know some people don't feel like he should he deserved an immediate rematch, but you could still make the argument that because Holloway's best rounds were the latter rounds, that you could at least like create the storyline going in that Holloway was starting to figure him out as the fight went on. He just kind of ran out of time. And, and so with that, you can still make enough of a case for, for Holloway to be the guy, the guy to fight Volkanovski. So to me, while I would like to, while, while I think the Chansung Jung versus Volkanovski fight's a very interesting one, especially since since Volkanovski likes to strike for the most part, I, I don't think that's going to be the next fight. I think Volkan, or I think um, I think Chansung Jung, his next fight is either going to be against the beat, or they might make a rematch with him and Yair Rodriguez, which is a fight that Jung was probably winning. I think if you look at the actual scorecards, I think he was winning that fight prior to getting knocked down in the final seconds. So maybe you run that one back and. I'm sure there won't be too many people who'd be upset about having that as a main event sometime early in twenty in um twenty or in twenty twenty. As far as what I've seen from Chansung Jung since returning from his military service, I I don't know how much he was able to train during that time, but it looks like he definitely was able to train a lot then. And he's a guy. And, and one of my the big things that I'll I bring up over and over is how annoyed I get watching fighters who get to the UFC or get to a high level, and they transition from just constantly working on improving their skills to just sort of doing camps and camps typically are just managing your skills and like sharpening tools you already have rather than building on new ones. Chansung Jung is a guy who over time has made some very drastic and noticeable improvements. His boxing has gotten significantly better. His jujitsu has gotten a lot better. Both in this fight and the Moicano fight, after he was able to to use that improved boxing to get an early knockdown, the way he was able to control on the ground, specifically from the back, uh, being able to flatten his opponents out, it, it showed me a lot. And if you look at some of Chan Sung Jung's past fights and say, okay, well, he lost to this guy or he had trouble with this guy, therefore maybe he's not as good as some people think he is now, I actually don't believe that. I actually think Chan Sung Jung is legitimately one of the top three featherweights in the world right now. And I would hope that if he doesn't get the title fight next, which I, I don't think is super likely, that he at least gets a fight against a guy who's considered a top contender and has a chance to prove himself to be, to be right up there because... He's a guy who could be a problem, and it really wouldn't shock me if he gets a title fight at some point in this year and maybe even gets a win, uh, depending on who his opponent ends up being at that point. Going through the rest of the card, Volkan Ozdemir versus Alexander Rakic was in the coming event. This is a fight that was extremely close. Ended up being a split-decision win for Volkan Ozdemir, who recently had a rough uh, split-decision against another top-ranking light heavyweight. At that point, it was Dominic Reyes, and Reyes got the nod over him. This time, it was Rakic, and this time, he got the nod over Rakic. Uh, as far as how this fight was scored, I I had a hard time with it because after the, the first round I, I gave to Rakic, the second round I just kind of started zoning in on Rakic's shin, which just had that absurd bruising from the light kick. And I, would, I don't know that I was necessarily paying attention to like all the strikes that were landed. I was sort of more just kind of like watching that leg and looking for openings for, o, for Ozdemir to hit it. And then when Ozdemir would, I'd be like, okay, let's see how much it swells up now. So I don't know that I was watching it the way a judge would watch it. So for that reason... When the fight was over, I, I had a feeling it might have gone to Rackets just for some of the flurries that he had um, going to the head, but I wasn't I wasn't sure of it either way, and it wasn't like at a level where if it goes one way or the other that I'd be upset. 
So Ozdemir got the win here, but I, I can't say that I feel like Ozdemir or that or that Rakic got robbed here. Uh, I feel like the total strike numbers, um, total is 118 to 87 for Ozdemir, but 63 to 75 in significance. So there's an edge there for Rakic in significant. Obviously, it goes round by round, not in total. So that's not actually how you score the fight. But the point being there is that it was a close fight. Uh, they, both, they both got their shots in. Uh, so excellent fight there for Ozdemir. He, he proved that he can still hang with some of the, the better contenders, although I don't know a lot of people expect him to be good enough to, to beat a champion. All right, Blackhawk just scored. Um, so I, I don't think anyone expects him to be a champion, but for, for him to at least be hanging there with a the guy who's a top contender in Rakic, that's, that's still good for him, and it still shows that he's relevant in the division. For Rakic, there was a lot of hype for him coming into this fight, and with light heavyweight being so 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 thin for contenders, people were hoping that he would get a dominant win here and show himself to be a guy who could potentially get a title fight early in 2020. With the loss here, that obviously sets him back, but it also showed some holes in his game where he had to fight the whole fight the full 15 minutes. Didn't really see much from him on a jiu-jitsu standpoint. He wasn't really able to get the fight to the ground too often when he did. Uh, Ozmir was able to get back up relatively quickly. On the feet, Rakic... It, it's not as though he was like stringing together long combinations. For the most part, he's getting backed up. Uh, was sort of just kind of like picking his spots and then kind of like exploding in and like trying to land multiple shots at a time. But it's not like he was like setting up a jab and then like working off the jab and then like trying to set up a bunch of stuff from there. It, it seemed more like he was picking his times to explode. And it, it seems like a guy like that who is getting backed up by Ozdemir, if he has to fight against fight against a guy like John Jones who also likes to use leg kicks, that that's just a very bad matchup for him. So even though he's a, a big guy, a really strong guy, and has like that that puncher's chance against anyone in the division. Uh, any hope for him being the guy to dethrone John Jones after watching that? I, I think a lot of that hope fell away. Fight prior to that was Duho Choi versus Charles Jordan. Duho Choi, sort of similar to Korean Zombie in that I, I've seen some noticeable improvements here between this fight and the last one, which you would hope so because he hasn't fought in almost two years. Uh, but that being said, like I've said before, some guys don't really take the time to make major improvements after they already get in the UFC. And Troy looked fantastic in the first round. Uh, I believe on a spinning back fist, though, he did um, break his wrist or at least like break his forearm, uh, which definitely made it more difficult for him to, to go on through the next couple of rounds. Jordan had this sort of weird strategy where he would kind of get backed up, backed up, and then as Troy would get close close to closing the distance on him, then Jordan would just throw a major flurry, but the flurry would constantly be changing up in terms of what specific punches he was throwing. Um, kicks were in there, knees were in there, uh, the angles he was hitting at. Uh, he was oftentimes moving his head off the center line in different directions. So it's not as though Troy was able to get a read on it early and then just like start picking him apart when he was doing it. Uh, it would sort of be like a, di- a different combination every time, or at least it felt that way. And So there were a few times when Troy was able to make him pay and land some big shots there, uh, but Jordan was also able to land some big shots of his own. Uh, but for the most part, uh, Troy was controlling early in the first round, dropped him, uh, had, had a nice leg kick and then a left hook dro- combination that dropped him. Uh, got on top of his guard, wasn't able to do a whole lot of work from there. Jordan was at least doing enough to to threaten with some submissions off his back. Not that he ever got close to close to finishing anything or even like throwing up an attempt, but you could tell he was working his way there and sort of slowed down Duho Choi's um, momentum when he was trying to get the finish there. Uh, then Jordan gets a knockdown late in the round. Uh, Choi is able to survive there. So then they go into the second round. Uh, Choi's a little bit more tentative. Jordan is finding a home for his shots a little bit more and is able to, to knock down Duho Choi in the second round and finish him on the ground. So really big one for him. This ends up being the fight of the night, which makes plenty of sense. There are plenty of good fights on this card, uh, but this, this was an excellent one as well, so you can't be mad about them getting a fight of the night. Uh, for Duho Choi, you know, the downside for him is that he has to deal with this this uh, required military service where he has to be away for two years. 
But I think for him, it can actually be a really good thing. Because my concern with Duho Choi is that he's got a very exciting style. He's got a very exciting striking style at that. But because of that, a lot of the guys he's going to get put up against in the UFC, we've seen him with the Cubs Swanson fight. We've seen him with the Charles Jordan matchup. He's going to be put up against other guys who are dangerous, who can knock him out and do a lot of damage to him. And he took a lot of damage in that Cubs Swanson fight. He definitely took some damage in this fight as well. And if he was in a position where he could fight every three to six months, he he could do a lot of damage that would sort of cut his career short right now. But the fact that he was only able to take this fight because it was in South Korea and the fact that he's probably going to be out for at least two more years beyond this, it's going to give him time where if he continues to spend that time in the gym, work on, work on upgrading his skills, by the time he finally comes back and he's finally done with that military service, we, we may have like the skill set that he would have been able to develop otherwise, but the, the damage that he might have taken otherwise won't be there. And I think for that reason, when Duho Troy finally does come back and gets through this entire uh, military service thing, we could have an interesting contender on our hands there. But again, that's going to be something that's going to be pushed down the line for a couple of years, so that's not going to be end of 2020, probably not at the end of 2021. We're, we're probably not going to see him again until 2022. Um, but if he sticks with it, I mean, if he takes his time and while he's doing his military service, continues to work on his craft, he could be an interesting contender contender at that point. Uh, for Jordan, um, I mean, solid jiu-jitsu. I believe on the broadcast, they said he's a brown belt. Uh, sort of a wild striking style. You'd figure that a really good wrestler would be able to take him down, and a lot of the wrestlers to make it to the UFC are at least good enough at staying out of trouble that a, a guy like Jordan isn't going to catch him. Um, so, so there are definitely some styles out there that, that'll give him some problems. I don't know that I see him as like a future ranked fighter or a future title contender, but he's definitely an exciting fighter to watch. And with, with a fight like this, even if he takes a couple losses in the near future, I'm sure the UFC will be happy to keep him around. Then we had Da Eun Jung versus Mike Rodriguez. Jung was walking him down for the, most of this fight. Uh, didn't last very long, lasted 64 seconds, and was able to land a huge straight right, dropped him, made him face plan, and while he was on the ground, landed a couple punches, and ref stepped in. Uh, so that was the end there. We had Jun Young Park versus Marc-Andre Berrio. Uh, Jun Young Park has just a very interesting nickname. I forgot what the uh, what the adjective was. It was like some kind of turtle. I thought that was kind of funny, but he did a really good job of like mixing up both strikes and striking and grappling. There'd be a handful of times where he can get Barrio to cover up and put both of his hands up. And during that time, Park was doing a good job of finding shots to the body, finding ways to to, to strike him to the head around his guard, uh, mix in takedown attempts. And e- even though the striking stats seem like it's relatively close with the significant strikes being at se- being 77 to 51, uh, part of that was Barrio having a, a strong third round and. Because, to me, just fantastic fight from Jun Young Park. Um, by the end of the second round, it's pretty clear that he had it in the bag. He just needed to make it through. and Maybe not the best third round out of him, but he, he did more than enough to get the win here. And then first fight on the main card on ESPN Plus was Kyungko Kang versus Lee uh, Ping Yuan. Not a, not a very fun fight to watch. Uh, ended up being a split decision. Kang uh, would eventually get a takedown in every round, but wasn't passing guard, wasn't getting close to any submissions, wasn't really posturing up, was just kind of hanging out on the hips for the most part. You would have liked to have seen more standouts from the ref, but I guess the ref felt like there was enough work being done there to keep it going, and that was a, a bit of a snoozer at a time when, if you were staying up late, that probably, that one probably would have put you to sleep if you weren't already asleep. And, and the way I had to watch these fights, I actually made it through like the first four on the ESPN card and ended up falling asleep, and then went back through ESPN+, Plus, which in, in a way was nice, because then I could just... If a fight was like this one, I could sort of fast-forward through it and not have to watch the entire thing. Uh, didn't have to deal with the large breaks in between, so it was a nice and quick way to, to watch a UFC event. And I was able to avoid any notifications, so I didn't know who won. So that was also helpful. 
Uh, but then on the prelims, we had Cyril Gon versus Tanner Boser. Gon's had a, a handful of stoppage finish or stoppage wins so far in his career. This one didn't go that way, but it was a very dominant win for him regardless. Ends up being 30-26 on all three judges' scorecards. Uh, so for him, good chance to, to get some more time in the octagon and get a dominant win there while he's doing it. Uh, then we had Sung Woo, or Sung Woo Choi versus Suman Mokhtarian. Uh, Mokhtarian didn't look very good in this fight. Uh, final scores are 29-25, 29-26, and 29-26. Uh, but Troy gets the win there. Dongyeon Ma uh, fell to Omar Morales. Uh, that was a unanimous decision. Kind of odd with the scores where there was a 30-26, a 30-27, and a 29-28. Uh, so every judge saw it a little bit differently. Then in what could potentially be a flyweight title eliminator, now with Henry Cejudo out of the picture, and with Figueredo versus Benavidez going for the title, Alexander Pantoja versus Matt Schnell. Schnell was on a little mini win streak where he's getting some finishes. Pantoja was looking pretty good. Uh, both of these guys were just swinging hard at each other early on. Schnell had Pantoja rocked a little bit uh, early on in the fight. Uh, there was a point which I thought was pretty interesting where Schnell pulled guard on Pantoja. Pantoja is an excellent black belt. Now, Grant Schnell is very good off his back, particularly in MMA. He's very has a very good trap guard, uh, really good at catching triangles, but Pantoja stayed out of trouble, and Schnell felt that it wasn't worth pulling guard again. Um, but eventually, with Schnell coming in, Pantoja threw an overhand right. That looked like it landed like above the eye. It was sort of weird for Schnell to go out the way that he did, given where it landed. Um, but then ended up face planting onto the ground, uh, took one more shot, and then was just completely out. And Pantoja gets the win here. So pretty cool for Pantoja to get a, a knockout in a flyweight fight in the first round. And that's something we're we're always used to seeing. So that was pretty cool. And for him being number four prior to this fight, uh, with number one and number three fighting for the title. Especially if Figueredo um, falls to Benavides, the Pantoja versus Benavides fight is a fight that we haven't seen yet. So that would be a very interesting fight that could be made if Benavides gets through and gets that title. Uh, the Figueredo fight was a fight of the night anyway, though. So even though Figueredo beat Pantoja, the fact that that was a fight of the night in a three-round fight, I don't know that anyone would be mad if they make that fight again and make it five rounds. So either way, there's a decent case that Alexander Pantoja could be next up for a flyweight title fight. Uh, Brandon Moreno had an excellent fight last week, but. With a win like this, there's a good chance that Pantoja's in the, in the driver's seat. Granted, a lot of things can change over the course of time. Obviously, we just saw Moreno go from a possible number one contender to Pantoja taking that back from him. But at, at this point, there, there's definitely a case to be made that he's a guy who you'd want to see fight against whoever wins the flyweight title fight. Then we had Rayoni Barcelos for Sayed Nurmagomedov. This Nurmagomedov is not the type of wrestler that you're used to seeing. Um compared to like a Khabib, or um, I'm trying to think of who Khabib's cousin is, who recently got triangled. Um, but either, either way, um, this fight was sort of a, a weird fight on the feet, where Barcelos, over time, was starting to find his openings against Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov was getting a little bit too comfortable throwing that spinning back fist and throwing it a few too many times. Uh, so Barcelos was just trying to time when he can come in and just throw heat and see what kind of damage he could do when he was doing that. Uh, but ultimately, he gets the unanimous decision win here, 29-28 on two of the judges' scorecards, 30-27 on the other. I don't see how it could be 30-27. I'm pretty sure that first round was a was a clear one for Nurmagomedov, but the two rounds to follow were a little bit closer. But there was definitely a case to be made that Barcelos won those, and that's how the ref saw it or how the judges saw it. Then on the fight before that, we had Amanda Lemos versus Miranda Granger, uh, which some expected to be more of a stand-up fight than it ended up being. Uh, fight ends up going to the ground. Lemos. It, there were a couple different times where she had some opportunities for some submissions, and given where the fence was, it, it sort of limited her options. But I thought what was interesting is that on, on the submission that she was able to finish with, it was a really similar setup to a submission I really like to hit a lot. Um, the version I like to hit, now granted in jiu-jitsu there aren't walls that you're running into, 
uh, it's called a nogi clock choke. So you throw your arm across the neck, sort of like in like a rear naked choke position, but then you like hop over and around the back and it ends up getting into a, what looks like a bulldog choke. You, you could argue it is a bulldog choke. I guess just the setup would be like a, the nogi clock, nogi clock choke, I guess more um, references the setup and the actual finish. Um, so I figured that that might have been something she was looking for, but the fence was in the way so she couldn't hop over. Uh, but she still had the arm underneath, uh, went for that rear naked choke grip, and then sort of like wedged herself in between the fence where normally if someone goes for um, a, a choke like that on you, you just have to get your back to the mat and you're, you're going to be safe for the most part. And it looked like had the fence not been there, there would have been space for Granger to get her back to the mat. Uh, so I wasn't able to do that. I was trying to use both of her hands to push up on the elbow. And it looks like her chin wasn't in it, but it looks like the way that it was being squeezed, both of the... Um, carotid arteries were being squeezed and obviously that that creates an effective blood choke and as a result granger ends up getting choked out and lamus gets the win here and then on the first fight of the card we had alatong Haley versus ryan benoit or benoit benoit looked good at times and then at other times um it, it was just an inconsistent fight from him Haley was coming in as a as a wrestler wasn't super effective on the ground but Ben Benoit really wasn't doing as much off his back as I as I'd expected. Now, granted, it's not as though he was like a great jujitsu guy, but one of the big things being talked about on the broadcast is that he'd been training with the Dan and her death squad, that he had Gary Tony in his corner, um, but he wasn't very aggressive off off his back when he when he was there. So, though Haley didn't do a ton of damage when he got on top, the fact that ben Benoit wasn't very effective off his back didn't really help him either help him out that much either. On the feet, uh, for the most part, it looked like Benoit had the edge. I, I thought Benoit had done enough to get the win here, but in the end, goes to the judges' scorecards, split decision 29-28, um, two times for Altong Haley, and then one time for Ryan Benoit. So, tough loss for him. Normally fights a flyweight. He was fighting a bantamweight here. I don't know if the idea is that he's going to move back down to flyweight. And with the division now seemingly having more interest in it, now they actually have a flyweight title fight being set. Uh, now we've had a couple fights like the one earlier on the card, or later on the card, I guess, because we're going from later fights to the earlier fights. Um, I, I guess that the idea is that they're trying to re rebuild that flyweight division, then they, they'd have reason to keep Benoit around at 10 and 6 and bring him back down to flyweight. But in some ways, it was a good fight for him because he, he showed some nice stuff on the feet, particularly with that left kick. Although I think um, after landing well to the body, he, he went a little bit too much to the well and ended up catching an elbow on one of the kicks and stopped throwing that kick as often as he had been prior to it. So it looked like that was a, a bit of an issue for him after the first round, but we'll see if he, if he gets kept around. But for, for the most part, showed some good skills, showed some areas where there's definitely still some room for improvement. But I guess if, if jujitsu was an issue for him, at least he's in the right place to improve it. But there, there's definitely more work to do there. On to the next topic. We have something that I've already been talking about. Uh, it's Henry Cejudo moving to flyweight or leaving flyweight. He, the, the way it was announced at first, it sounded as though it was the UFC's decision to strip him. Cejudo at least came out so that he relinquished the title. Why he would relinquish the title now of all times, uh, I'm, I'm sure there was some pressure on him. Like, hey, look, you either have to take this fight or you're going to have, or, or we're going to have to take the title away from you. And I think at that point he's like, well, I, I know I'm not going to take it. I, I just, I might as well get ahead of this now and, and be the one who chooses to relinquish it. But whatever the case may be. Henry Cejudo is no longer the flyweight champion, so Triple C is now back to Double C. Uh, kind of a bummer there because I love the Triple C gimmick, but I I'm sure he can kind of be like Conor McGregor, where McGregor continued on as though he still had both championships even after he was even after he was stripped. So I'm sure Henry Cejudo can still keep both belts in his promos while he's um, doing his little cringe stick. Um, but with him out of the picture now, obviously Joseph Benavides and Davis and Figueredo are going to be fighting for the title in February. 
how I see this fight going, I'm I'm having a hard time with Benavides because I was at the Benavides versus Sergio Pettis fight, and that's the fight that Pettis won. And to my knowledge, Benavides doesn't train with Team Alpha Male anymore. He's sort of been moving around camps. And he just didn't look quite like himself in that fight. Now, since then, he has looked pretty good in some recent fights. So for me, I'm still trying to figure out, like, the, the current Benavides that we have. Like, how does he compare to, to the past Benavides? Um, how much of his skills developed since then? For, da- for Davis and Figueredo, uh, really good jiu-jitsu, although for the most part, he doesn't really use it a whole ton unless, like, you, you force it on him and you actually try to take him down. Um, very aggressive striker. Uh, throws a lot of wild, hard punches, but is still fairly accurate. And so the fight that he had with Pantoja was just a, a war on the feet. So you would imagine that how this fight's going to go is Figueredo will be more than happy to, to just keep it on the feet and look for big shots and try to knock out Benavides. For Benavides, I'm sure he'll, at, at points he'll be looking for his big shots. Is he going to try to take this fight to the ground, though, and make it more of a grappling match over the course of five rounds? I think that's going to be interesting. I'm not sure what what his plan is there. If he does, he's going to have to worry about uh, the, the guillotine of Figueredo. Now, granted, uh, given the time that he had with Team Alpha Male, uh, if there's ever a place to train and get used to, to dealing with guillotines and finding ways to defend against them, that would be the place to do it. So that that could be a benefit to him here, and it, it may be able to get him out of some trouble because there may be a time or two where he goes for a takedown and has to fight his way out of a guillotine, and a couple of little details that he might have had to learn to, to survive at Alpha Male might be what helped him survive here. But on the feet, if Benavides is able to mix in the throw of the takedown enough to, to stifle and... To, to give pause to Figueredo, that, that can definitely help him out a lot. But if, if he isn't very effective with the takedowns, I could see Figueredo starting to overwhelm him, especially as, as the fight goes along. But that's a fight we'll look at a little bit more closely, closer to when it happens. But at least on um, initial glance, definitely an interesting fight. Not a fight where it's super clear from the from the jump who's going to win. And oftentimes those are, the, those are the fights you want. You want fights where you can't exactly predict them from the start. You, you want fights where you could say, well, if X, Y, or Z happen, then this guy's going to win. But if A, B, and C happen, this guy's going to win. So... Seems like that's kind of what we're getting in that fight, and that's definitely a good thing for us as fans. Next topic to talk about is Derek Lewis, who put up a post on, at least where I saw it was Twitter. I'm sure he put it up on Instagram and any other uh, account that he had, but it was security footage from a gym where, in his description, a boxer came in and said that he could knock him out because he's an MMA fighter. So he's like, this is what happens when a boxer does that. And in the footage, it's just him rocking a guy in in, in a boxing sparring match. Then the guy kind of goes to the ropes and is facing the other way, and then Lewis... Uh, punches him a few more times while he's in the ropes, and you can see people from outside the the ring start to like chase after him and try to break him up. Uh, so while the the so-called boxer is effectively giving up and Lewis is still hitting him, um, they're trying to end, end that situation and, and get it over with. So in the video that I did on it, I said, okay, well, let's look at the video, and then from there just talk about um, what... What likely happened here, given the information we have, and again, the information was very limited. It was just the video that Derek Lewis put up, and then also like the little caption he said, which is the boxer, so to speak. Um, so I was saying, okay, let, well, let's let's figure out what happened here, and then also let's figure out if there are any repercussions that could happen. And by using the word repercussions, a lot of people are like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Like, repercussions. This guy was talking shit. He, he went in the gym. Uh, he got his repercussions. He got beat up. The, the point that I was making there, and, and again, in that video, the final point I had was I don't think there's going to be any repercussions for, for Derek Lewis. I don't think he's going to get in trouble for it. The point I was making is that, yes, if you if I go into a gym or if someone goes into a gym and they sign a waiver prior to sparring, for the most part, that's going to protect the owner of the gym and it's going to protect the people who typically train in the gym. But the point is that a waiver doesn't protect everything. So if you sign a waiver, um, so let's just say that I, like, 
got into like some trash talking match with someone online and they decided they wanted to show up to my gym and spar me. If we just had like a normal sparring match and say I, I knock them out and at that point like I, I stop or maybe we, we do jujitsu, I get them in a choke and then they tap out and I let go, like that, that's fine. Even if I get them in an arm bar and their arm pops um, before they tap out, like I'm not going to have to pay for their surgery if their arm gets broken. But if that same thing happens and say I get a guy in an arm bar, he taps out and then I just keep going and going and going and going and going and I just keep ripping on the arm, am I then still protected by the waiver? That's where I'd say probably not. Uh, or maybe I choke him, on, or maybe I have him in a choke and he taps and I keep holding on and he goes unconscious. And then while he's unconscious, I decide, okay, you know what? Now I'm going to heal him while his body's still laying there unconscious and then I rip his knee apart. Am I protected by the waiver? Even though he signed a waiver, the waiver doesn't protect you from everything. So that's the point I was getting at is, yes, the guy signed a waiver, but that there's still like some point where it goes from what's reasonable and what's expectable to what, what's just too far and across the line. So what I, was, what I was trying to get at is by him hitting the guy through the ropes, I don't think that that crosses the line. I wouldn't say that it crosses the line. I would hope that no judge would think it crosses the line. But it's definitely a, a step towards the line. It's not as though he, he just knocked the guy out clean in sparring and then saw the guy was out and just kind of walked away as though it was just like two fighters who were teammates sparring. Like, like it was clear that he, he was going a little bit beyond what, what was necessary there. And when you do that, you can definitely take things a little bit too far to the point where you can get in trouble. Did Derek Lewis take things too far where he can get in trouble? No, I, I don't think that he did. But it's definitely something that can happen. Just because you sign a waiver doesn't mean that anything that it follows is, is okay. If you talked a bunch of shit to me, wanted to spar me in MMA or spar me in Jiu-Jitsu, and I decide to break your arm while you're still tapping, if I decide to rip your knee after you're already choked unconscious, it's not like you can just say, like, oh, well, he signed a waiver, it's okay. Or, oh, he talked shit, shouldn't have done that. Like, you, you kind of have to be reasonable here, and you have to look at the situation at hand and look at what's reasonable for the situation. In this specific case, Derek Lewis, he, he didn't have to hit the guy after he went through the ropes, but I don't think he was hitting the guy in the head anyway. I think he was kind of hitting him to the body, uh, just sort of making his case there. Were, were those unnecessary? Yes. Are they going to get him in legal trouble? They shouldn't, but it, at least to, to broach that topic and say, hey, look, there there is a possibility that you can take things a little bit too far. Now do I think Lewis took things too far? I think that's a conversation worth having. That's a conversation I did have, um, but some people didn't make it through the entire thing, so they thought that I was advocating for Derek Lewis to get into legal trouble for what he did. That's that's not the case. I, I'm not advocating for Derek Lewis to get into legal trouble. I'm just saying, when when someone comes into your gym and you spar him and you, you have, you, you've reasonably won that spar and you decide to continue on beyond that, you, you're starting to push the line to a point where you, you might eventually cross it. I don't think Derek Lewis crossed the line here, but the, the line does exist and it's worth mentioning that. Next topic is going to be touching on uh, Kevin Lee and him deciding to get involved in politics. And I also did a video on this. And my take on this... So first off, I guess I'll explain what's happening and then give my take on it after. So Bernie Sanders, following the debate uh, this week, is having a speaking event, or I guess at this point has had a speaking event in Las Vegas. And at that speaking event, he has his campaign chair, which is the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulin Cruz. Uh, he also has uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at that event. And they, they brought on a couple of celebrity speakers, so to speak, and Kevin Lee was among them. So there was him, and then there was also some DJ who was playing a set there as well. So what I was talking about is, do I think it's a good idea for Kevin Lee to get involved in a political topic like this, and is it going to be beneficial for him or not? And, and my point on this is I actually think it's a very good move for him. So if you think about talking about politics in general, one of the reasons why you're told not to talk about politics 
and usually it's don't talk about politics and don't talk about religion. That that's a phrase that's often put in the context of like meeting someone at work or let's say that I was about to meet my girlfriend's family or or my new girlfriend's family or maybe um I, like I had a sibling who wanted me to meet their significant other's family. Like for a situation like that, it's best not to talk about those things and the reason why is because you don't want to draw a a really big reaction out of them. If it's positive then then okay, that's great, but if it's negative then that's obviously not going to be a good thing in those situations. And MMA Drawing a big reaction out of someone, whether positive or negative, is perfectly fine. Uh, we, we've definitely seen that with Colby Covington, where for the people who drew it drew negative reactions out of him, it, it definitely made them want to watch him fight. And there were a lot of people who were reveling in the fact that he lost, and particularly he lost while having his jaw broken. So a lot of people who typically don't talk about MMA who were putting up posts about, oh, hey, uh, black immigrant fighter breaks straw of white... MAGA supporting Donald Trump's favorite fighter, Colby Covington. Like, you were seeing posts like that. So for Kevin Lee, getting involved in politics, I, I think I actually th- like the idea of a fighter getting involved in politics because it, it means that they're doing something that, for people who agree with them, for people who like Bernie Sanders, this is probably going to make them like Kevin Lee more. If you don't like Bernie Sanders, if you hate Bernie Sanders, if you think Bernie Sanders is trying to destroy the American economy with his, with his policies, uh, then you're probably going to want to see Kevin Lee lose his next fight. So for that reason, it, it's bringing it's bringing emotions into into a Kevin Lee fight for the fan. And to me, I think that's a good thing. So for him, I don't know that he's looking at it in the same type of way that Colby Covington might have looked at getting involved with Trump. I think Covington was a little bit more calculated in trying to use Trump as, as a gimmick, where I think Kevin Lee, he lives in Vegas. He had an opportunity to speak at a Bernie Sanders event. He took it. I don't... The way this was promoted, it, it kind of came out in a late press release. It's not like Kevin Lee was like going around tooting his own horn about it and like trying to draw a bunch of attention to it. Uh, but, but by getting involved, I, I think it's going to be good for him in, in terms of making people care about the results of his next fight. Because like I mentioned, if you don't like Bernie, then you're, you're going to want to see Kevin Lee's next fight because you're going to want to see him get hurt. If you if you do like Bernie, well, then you're going to want to see him do well and see him work his way up the ladder and have a bigger platform to support the candidate that you support too. So to sort of build off of that, uh, like I had mentioned, Colby Covington had drawn a lot of attention using the little political gimmick. Um, which mostly started with him going to the White House. Well, after Kamar Usman defeated him, he put up a Twitter post the day after, and I, I ended up missing this in the last podcast, um, but let me pull up the exact post um, that Kamar Usman put up. But it had over 30,000 likes, and it says, we all bleed the same. This was also for the, in in quotations, United States of America. I'm taking this belt to the White's house, and at Dana White, at real Donald Trump. I think he meant White House, but by adding Dana White, I don't know if the idea is that he's taking it to Dana White's house and then also the White House. Maybe maybe that was what he meant, or maybe he just meant he was taking it to the White House and he wanted Dana White to help facilitate that in the same way that he, he felt Dana White facilitated the, the Colby Covington thing. Now, as far as this idea goes, I actually think it's a pretty good idea. I think that it would make sense for Trump to, to actually bring him to the White House. I know it kind of sucks that he was a big um, proponent of Colby Covington. He'd be bringing in the guy who beat Colby. But if you look at how this is going to go, like if you're looking at it from Trump's standpoint, like what's the worst thing that's going to ha- that's going to happen? Like he's got the Secret Service. Like Kamara Usman isn't going to go there and then like double like Trump through the table at the Oval Office and then like beat him up. Like the worst thing that's going to happen is Kamara is going to like ask him a hard question and put him on the spot. But do I think Kamara Usman is going to like? put Donald Trump in some sort of like political mind mind puzzle that like all the other people who've tried haven't been able to do. I, I don't see that being the case. So for him, I, I really don't see the downside in having a guy like Kamaro Usman come to the White House. Uh, for Kamaro, 
if he wants to try to make this a thing about unity, then I mean that that can definitely be a good thing for him. Uh, it's going to draw a lot of attention to him, just being a, a guy who shows shows up at the White House. Uh, he's definitely going to get a lot of um, a lot of attention for it. So for him, I, I could definitely see the benefits there. Also, we've seen in the past with Kim Kardashian being able to get a lot of people out of jail, get their sentences shortened um, by going there and, and making a case. Maybe Kamara goes there, and makes a case for his father, and maybe the case is good enough that Trump decides to to pardon his dad. I don't know that I would see that necessarily happening, but that's that's an option that could be there. So. To me, I, I just don't see the downside in Kamara going either from Kamara's side or from from Trump's side. So to me, if this is something he actually wants to do, he's the one who put, put it out there. It's not as though Trump has to like go out there, offer the invite, and then have Kamara turn it down and have to risk that. Like Kamara's the one who sort of offered it up. So if, if Kamara says, I want to go to the White House, Trump says, okay, and then Kamara says, actually, no, fuck you, I don't want to go. Well, that, that's not a, a bad luck for Trump at all. Whereas if Trump was the one who like offered the hand and Kamara slapped it back, it might look a little bit worse. Now, granted, still it would be a bad look for Kamara. But I think at this point, if Kamara's the one who's offering it, uh, I, I'd go ahead and try to make it happen. Now, obviously, there's other things going on in the White House right now with impeachment. With impeachment, I'm sure, um, can take some focus away. But if this is something that can fit, that can get fit into the schedule, I, I think it's worth doing. Last thing to talk about with Colby Covington and Kamara Usman is that in that fight between Colby and Kamara. Colby ended up getting $500,000 flat, so win or lose in that fight. That's what he ended up negotiating for. What we ended up finding out later is that that $500,000 flat meant no pay-per-view points. So the question that I would have is, what sort of options were on the table for Colby for Colby when he took this fight? I, I think a concern for him and some, something that people were talking about beforehand is that, yes, he's drawing a lot of attention. Yes, he's getting a lot of emotion out of people. But how much does he actually sell? And I think this event ended up being probably the best event that Colby Colby's been a part of in terms of uh, in terms of selling it uh, the fight with RDA I think it was headlined by Yol and um, Robert Whitaker that one didn't do terribly well on pay-per-view then he had the ESPN event against Robbie Lawler which was taking place during the day because ESPN had prioritized a um, a primetime event that I think was with the NFL Hall of Fame so with it being during the day and um, with the promotion not being particularly good uh, for that fight, the numbers weren't great. So I guess at that point, maybe Colby Covington had felt that there was reason to be concerned that he wasn't going to do great numbers on pay-per-view, or at least do fantastic numbers on pay-per-view. So he, he wanted to go with the guarantee rather than take a lower guarantee and then still have pay-per-view points on top and need to sell X amount to, to make more than 500000 I I don't know what the specific figures were, but I do find it interesting that in a main event, on a card that he did the brunt of the promotion for, that he did, did not get pay-per-view points, doesn't necessarily seem fair, but again, if he had an offer on the table where he could have gotten pay-per-view points and maybe in hindsight could have made more money than he ended up making, uh, but he took the deal with more guarantee, then, I mean, that's on him at that point. Um, but to me, I, I, I guess it is worth noting that he, he didn't get pay-per-view points, but without knowing whether or not that was one of the options on the table that he decided not to take, uh, it, it's hard for me to say whether or not the UFC screwed him here or not. Uh, but at the end of the day... UFC made him made an offer. He accepted the offer. If if you're not willing to take what they're going to pay, you don't have to take it. He felt like the offer he was being given was worth taking. Took it, fought for it. Now has five hundred thousand dollars extra in his bank account beyond what else he was able to make. So for him, maybe in hindsight he he realizes he could have made more had he taken a, a deal with a lower guarantee and some maybe few points if that was on the table. But given the information we have, I don't know if there's a whole lot more I can really add to the story beyond just sort of reporting what it is and just speculating on what what else could have been there. Next topic is UFC pay-per-views. 
so after the ESPN Plus deal was put in place last year, it went from being $65 a pay-per-view to being either $60 if you already have an active ESPN Plus subscription or being, I believe it was $80 uh, if you don't, and that would cover your yearly ESPN Plus subscription and then cover that specific pay-per-view. So if you had already bought one, then the second one would then be $60. So what they're doing now is, I believe you still have to have ESPN Plus, so that's still in place. Um, but now it's going to be 65 for the pay-per-view, so back to what it used to be, If you also, e- even if you already have ESPN+. Plus, and it'll be 85 if you don't, and then that'll give you the year of ESPN+, Plus uh, with the pay-per-view. So, to me, this is one of those things where I, it doesn't really register with me as being like that big of a deal, because ES- or UFC consumers have been used to paying $65 for pay-per-views for, for a while. It was a bit of a treat this year to be able to pay a little bit less if you already were getting ESPN+. Plus. So in that way, if you're conditioned to paying $65 and now the price is returning to $65, should you really be complaining that much? I mean, oftentimes we see prices go up over, go up over time. That's something that typically happens with inflation. So it's not as though this is like the price going up along with the rate of inflation. This is just the price going back to what it had, pri- had previously been. So to me, it's not the biggest deal. It's not like the UFC is like gouging people or like there's anything wrong here. Granted, the timing works out where it's going to be for a Conor McGregor fight where people would tend to be willing to pay a little bit more. Obviously we've seen with Floyd Mayweather that for his big boxing pay-per-views, whether it's the Manny Pacquiao fight or even the Conor McGregor fight, not only was he able to sell a lot of quantity, but he was also able to charge up or or bring the price up even higher than normal for those pay-per-views and still be able to sell a lot. So I I don't know that I see the UFC following that model right away where they're going to start charging more for pay-per-views that are bigger pay-per-views. So rather than charging 65 for, a Conor McGregor fight, maybe charging like 100 for a Conor McGregor fight. I don't know if they're going to do that. I They haven't done that yet to this point. Um, but by bringing it back to 65, to me, yeah, it kind of sucks. You're going to have to be paying $5 more every time you buy a pay-per-view, but it's not like this is this is something that you have to be like screeching about and feeling like UFC is just trying to like gouge their customers and just screw people over. It, it, to me, it's not that big of a deal. Next topic to talk about is Robert Whitaker versus Jared Cannonier. That fight was announced for March at UFC 248. The significance there is that we're still looking for a, for someone to fight up against um, Israel Adesanya. Darren Till also had an impressive win over Kelvin Gastelum, so there was some question about who he would be fighting next. Uh, also some question about who Kelvin would be fighting next. Uh, with Robert Whitaker now being taken, that means that the Whitaker versus Till fight that was being talked about for London, that is off the board. There was some talk about Kelvin Gastelum versus Whitaker, a fight that was supposed to be for the title um, before Whitaker had his... Um, I believe it was, I'm trying to think of what it was, if it was like a hemorrhoid or a hernia. I think it was a hernia. Um, but whatever issue that that was that took him out of that fight last second, that was supposed to be a title fight, so the idea of running that back was on the table. Um, that's gone now. That's not going to happen. Uh, and then with Cannonier having a, a, a strong run towards the top of the division right now, there was some talk of him being the guy to step in against Adesanya because right now Paulo Borashina is the number one contender, but he has a bicep surgery that he's recovering from, and it sounds like he's not going to be back immediately. The next guy that was being brought up was Joel Romero, but Joel Romero, I believe, is 1-3 in, in his last four fights, which is a concern for some people. So that meant that Cannonier was likely to be the next guy in line who, who would have made the most sense. Uh, so with him being locked up now, it means that Joel Romero is likely to get the next fight unless they just hang on to Israel Adesanya and wait for Bolshin, for uh, Paulo Acosta to be back. Uh, so on, on its own, this Cannonier versus Robert Whitaker fight is a very interesting fight. Obviously, if, if Cannonier gets the win here, he's got to be next for a title fight. If Whitaker gets the win here... Uh, you'd figure he might need one or two more before you can run back that um, that fight without a sign and maybe run that back at a stadium in Australia as well. That could probably sell very well for them. 
so the fight in and of itself is a very interesting fight. It's definitely got a lot on the line in terms of who's able to get the win here. Uh, but it also clears up um, the division a little bit in terms of there being questions of who's fighting who. At least now we know who Whitaker is not going to be fighting right now. At least we know who Cannoneer is not going to be fighting right now. So hopefully with this fight being made, we're going to start to see some more matchups at middleweight made because there were a lot of people who were being held up uh, trying to figure out who's going to fight who. And with this first piece out of the way, it, it should make things a little bit simpler for the rest. Next topic to talk about is going to be the U.S. Open slash U.S. Senior Nationals. Right now, the um, the U.S. wrestling or the U.S. wrestlers are in the process of trying to figure out who's going to make the Olympic team, and so they're they're running through a bunch of different tournaments to qualify for the Olympic trials that'll be taking place in April. So if you win an NCAA title, you can get a spot in those trials, but if not, you, you have to win one of these other tournaments. So there was the Bill Farrell recently, but now we have the um, the Senior Nationals. So I'm going to go through the results of each of the brackets that they had at Freestyle. I'm not going to talk about Greco or women's. Um, but at one or at 57 kilograms, which is around 125 pounds, the number one um, the number one guy in this division, or at least in this bracket, is Nathan Tomasello. Number two um, was Nick Soriano, who was the 133 pound 133 pound champion last year at NCAA's, and then Spencer Lee was the number three who had a fantastic uh, freestyle career, but hasn't gone back to freestyle since start, or since going to the University of Iowa. So this is his first freestyle tournament in quite a long time. And it, it, it's gone fantastic for him. So in his opening round, he went up against uh, a, a guy in Kim, got a 30-second tech fall. Uh, they went against Darian Cruz, who is a former D1 national champion, 125 pounds beat. I, I guess technically they were never teammates, Um Almost an overlap there, but there wasn't quite one. Um, but Thomas Gilman and Spencer Lee both are with the Hawkeye Wrestling Club, I guess. Uh, but Cruz was able to beat Thomas Gilman in the semifinals and then win a national title. Um, but Spencer Lee is able to, to get a big win over Darian Cruz here, 10 nothing, And then against Vito Arujo, who had a really strong year last year at 125 pounds for Cornell, uh, he falls to Spencer Lee. So, so Lee gets into the finals on the bottom half of the bracket. On the top half of the bracket, Tomasello gets through Pirelli. Um, or I guess they're Frankie Pirelli, and then in the semifinals beats Nashawn Garrett, who I believe was a national title or national champion from, from Cornell. But Garrett has made the um, U.S. senior national team, been the number one guy in the country. Um, I believe that's 61 kilograms at one point or another. Uh, so really good guy in his own right. But Thomas Hill is able to get a tech fall win over there over him. So now we're going to get Thomas Hill versus Spencer Lee. This is a match we've seen a handful of times in the NCAA's, with Spencer Lee being at Iowa and Thomas Hill being at Ohio State. Spencer Lee lost in um, in the Big Tens to Tomasello. believe... I, I can't remember who lo- who won the duel. I think Spencer Lee might have won the duel, but I, I know for a fact in NCAAs, um, these guys went against each other. I believe it was in the semifinals, and Spencer Lee was able to get the win and then eventually won the national title for Iowa. So he won it as a true freshman, getting through Tomasello, and ended up winning again last year. And if he's able to get through Tomasello here... Um, then he will qualify for the Olympic trials at 57 kilograms, and that's without even thinking about the fact that he's number one in the nation right now at 125 pounds. If he ends up winning the national title as expected, um, then he would have qualified regardless. But this is one way to do it where you don't have to rely on just one tournament in March. If you can take care of it now, might as well, and at least then you can put a little bit more focus on folk style um, between now and the rest of the NCAA season. At 65 kilograms, which is around 143 pounds, we had a very interesting weight class with Yanni Giacomahalis being in there. Now, Yanni almost made the Olympic team, or almost made the world team this year. Was getting through pretty much everyone except for Zane Rutherford. 
and even Zane, he he had times where he was able to beat Zane. I think they had four matches and they were tied two to two. Um, but the matches that Yanni was losing happened to be the most important matches for qualifying for the team. So as a result, Zane, Re- Zane Rutherford makes the team. Uh, doesn't have the best showing in the World Championships. Meanwhile, Yanni had a pretty good year of international wrestling. He ended up beating a guy who at the time was number one in the number one in the world, in Bajrang Punia. Um, but Yanni was expected to win this tournament and had a tough matchup in the semifinals against a guy in Joey McKenna who gave him a tough run at Ohio State uh, for the national title last year. Yanni was able to just just skid by him there. Um, but here in the semifinals on the top half of the draw, Joey McKenna actually was able to get the win. Uh, gets a late takedown against him to, to tie it at 5-5. Five to five. It would have had the lead in criteria. Yanni's team challenges it, kind of knowing they weren't going to get it anyway, but they figured, hey, why not? Uh, they lose a point on the challenge, so it ends up being 65. But a last second takedown for Joey McKenna gets him the win there. Uh, but Yanni had beaten uh, Whitford to get to that semifinal match. McKenna had beaten Evan Henderson to get to that semifinal match. So now McKenna is in the finals on the top half of the draw. On the bottom half, Nick Lee, who got a win over... Um, guy who just went to Iowa, Jaden Ironman, got a win over Jaden Ironman by the score of 10-6, to 6, which is a little bit surprising in that Jaden Ironman, at least in, in folk style, is ranked ahead of, or typically would be ranked ahead of Nick Lee. The expectation would be that if Jaden Ironman were to come out of retro right now and wrestle for Iowa, that he'd be ranked ahead of Nick Lee. Uh, the expectation is that if he comes back next year, that he would then be ranked ahead of Nick Lee. So for Lee to get a win over him in freestyle is very interesting. Uh, kind of curious to, to know what Jaden Ironman's training situation has been like right now. After leaving the Missouri team, um, has he been? How often has he been training relative to what he usually does when he's in season? Right now, he, he's in an Olympic redshirt. He's not planning to wrestle for anyone this year. Uh, does a loss here to Nickley pretty much cement the fact that he just needs to focus specifically on freestyle and just continue ahead with the plan where he's just not going to even think about folk style this year? You, you'd figure that'd be the case, but going into next year, whenever Jay Norman does take his senior season. Having this loss to Nickley in freestyle is definitely going to make for an interesting storyline before these guys eventually face each other in a folk-style match. Or I, I guess they'll face each other in a handful of folk-style matches if one's in Iowa and one's in Penn State. Uh, but an interesting result right there. Uh, but then Lee gets a win over Laser, who um, I believe beat Frank Molinaro. Yeah, beat Frank Molinaro. Um, but Lee gets a win over him, moves on to the semifinals. Meanwhile, Joey, er, Jordan Oliver, Jordan Oliver, um, had a big one over Bryce Meredith. Uh, he, he faces Nick Lee and runs right through him, beats him 10 to nothing. Uh, so now we'll have Oliver versus McKenna to to go for the 65 pound or 65 kilogram title here. Then the next uh, weight class to look at is 74, uh, 74 kilograms. I'm not sure what the um, what the conversion is there on that. Um, but here Nazar Kolchitsky was the number one seed. Didn't make it all the way to the finals though. So he ends up getting knocked off by Logan Massa from Michigan in the semifinals by a score of 15-6. to 6, So a pretty dominant win there for Massa. Massa had to get through Anthony Valencia to get to that match. Uh, then we have Tommy Gant um, getting to the semifinals after beating Evan Wick, who's been a pretty good wrestler for Wisconsin. Uh, meanwhile, Makai Lewis, who was the 165-pound champion last year in NCAAs, he beats Chance Marsteller, who I believe finished fourth at that weight, uh, but had, had a pretty good year there. Uh, but then Lewis goes up against Gant, gets a 3-1 win, so he will be facing off against Massa. So it's going to be Mikhail Lewis versus Logan Massa at 86 kilograms. Alex Derringer, who I believe at 79 kilograms, him and Kyle Dake were pretty much 1-2 in the world. Um, Derringer decided he wanted to move up a weight, so he's moving up from 79 kilograms to 86 kilograms. Now with each kilogram being over 2 pounds, that's, that's quite a bit of weight there. 
Uh, so the question was going to be, how would he do up, up against these bigger, stronger guys? Granted, he's a, an excellent wrestler. I believe in college he wrestled 165 pounds. Um, but in the quarterfinals, he had a match against Brett Favre, who I believe wrestled at 197 pounds from Minnesota. And it was, it was a very close match, but you would have figured just in freestyle that Derringer would run through him, and that definitely wasn't the case. It was a 2-1 to one win for Derringer. Uh, so he, he just barely gets by. Meanwhile, in the other quarter, we have Miles Martin getting a 7 nothing win over Nick Heflin, setting up a match between Derringer and Martin. And Martin, uh, a former 184-pound champion, is able to get the win over Alex Derringer here by a score of 6-4. So Miles Martin is in the finals knocking out the number one seed, Alex Derringer. On the bottom half of the draw, Sammy Brooks falls to Aaron Brooks. Aaron Brooks is a freshman from Penn State. Has looked fantastic in freestyle. Has looked pretty pretty solid in folk style, too, but although he's, he's got to actually go up there and, and face some of the best guys for us to really see where he's at. Uh, but he gets the win over Sammy Brooks. Uh, Nate Jackson falls to Zahid, Zahid Valencia. Then Zahid gets the win over Aaron Brooks by a score of 6 to nothing. so we're going to get a match between Zahid Valencia and Miles Martin. A battle of um, former NCAA champions. They'll be going for first place there at 86. At 97, which is Kyle Snyder's way to look, Kyle Snyder isn't in this because he's obviously already qualified. Pretty um, pretty impressive performance out of his, his old teammate from Ohio State and Colin Moore. Uh, so Colin Moore gets by Derek White, um, who was one of the top contenders at heavyweight last year, uh, but is dropping down to 97 kilograms here. Uh, then faces off against Kyvin Gatson and gets a 6-3 win there. So Colin Moore is into the finals. On the bottom half of the draw, Hayden Zomer is going to face him after beating Ty Walls 4-3 in the semifinals. So we'll get a match between Colin Moore and Hayden Zilmer um, for a spot on the line at the Olympic trials. And for Colin Moore, with, with the performance that we saw out of him here, he, he was a guy who, after his freshman year, a lot, of, a lot was expected out of him. He was expected to be a, a future NCAA champion, but... Lost last year to Bo Nickel, which wasn't a major shock, but but ended up losing to Bo Nickel. And so there were some thoughts that, you know, maybe he's a little bit inconsistent. He wasn't improving as much as people expected and out of him. Uh, sometimes he just runs through people. Sometimes he, he has matches that are closer than they need to be. So for him to be in a field as good as this field is and to look as good as he looks so far, definitely a positive sign for him and maybe reason for hope that this year he's going to have a really strong season and, and, and actually be able to wrestle to a seed. And this might be the year they finally win the NCAA title. At heavyweight, we had Anthony Nelson versus Tanner Hall in the quarterfinals. Nelson beat him 6-0. Um, a match between two Penn State wrestlers, a guy who just transferred there in Daniel Kirkfleet versus Nick Neville, a guy who's a former NCAA All-American, but unfortunately was wrestled out of his spot by the guy who won the title last year in Anthony Kassar. Um, but Kirkfleet uh, was able to get a quick takedown on Neville's and was able to pin him right off of that takedown, so gets a pin within a minute against a former D1 All-American. Kirkfleet hasn't wrestled an NCAA match yet. Uh, this this would be his freshman year. First, he went to, I believe it was Minnesota initially, or Oklahoma State. I think the plan might have been Minnesota, but then with Gable Stevenson being there, he, he didn't want to go. Uh, but then transferred to Ohio State. Never wrestled for Ohio State, just transferred over to Penn State. Uh, so for him, a uh, really, really good win there. I don't know that he's going to find a, find a spot in the lineup this year, but at least getting a win like this shows, shows where his level's at right now. Granted, folk style and freestyle aren't the same thing, but being able to take down a high-level folk-style guy like that still transfers over. What you do on the Mac from there um, is, is where it could be different. But again, transitioning off that takedown immediately to a pin, that, that definitely transitions over to folk-style. Uh, so he gets the win there, then has to face Anthony Nelson for a spot in the finals, ends up falling to, falling to Nelson by a score of 3-2. to two. Uh, Then Anthony Kassar on the bottom half of the bracket uh, gets to the semifinals, going up against Don Bradley. Uh, but Bradley beats him by a score of 7-2. to two. And I think there might have been a pin there. Yeah, I, th- I think Bradley might have pinned him as well. Uh, so that means we get Bradley versus Nelson, one versus two in the finals there. 
uh, for 125 and a weight that is currently held by Nick Wisdowski. So obviously a lot going on there, uh, a lot of really deep draws there. Um, but to to build on wrestling, uh, a storyline to to cover here, and I guess someone who's not going to be covering too much of this bracket is going to be Willie Saylor. So th- this is a, a topic that I what I'm going to comment on is pretty much all I've been able to gather. And, and some of it's speculation too, but from what I've been able to gather, Willie Saylor was one of the top guys at Flow, one of the um, the best on-air personalities for them. He quit Flow prior to the NCAA season starting this year, and after doing so, has sort of come out on Twitter and, and been very scorned against them, talking about how he just doesn't like the ethic of the company. And after doing that, he was served with, um, I don't know if it was like a lawsuit or a restraining order, but the idea being that with him working at Flow, that he had signed a non-compete, and they're saying that because he signed that non-compete that he can't cover wrestling for the next year. So the idea there is this question of whether or not it's right for like a sports site uh, to stop a journalist from covering that sport after they leave. And if you listen to the Willie Sailor side and the side of people who, who like Willie or, or people who are involved with Rockfin, which is the platform that he moved to, to them it's like, oh, well, he's just a hard-working American who's trying to make some money and... Big old corporate flow is trying to stop them. Flow hasn't really re- given their side of the story, although if you look at the story as a whole, you, you can kind of figure out what it is. And so to me, one of the things I don't like about the story is that depending on who's talking, it, it seems like it's a really biased take. Um, the the flow side or the um, the Rockfin side or the the Willie Sailor side is all about Flow is just trying to just stop this guy from covering the sport. It's not fair. Um, what they're doing is just completely out of line. They're just trying to screw over a hardworking American. Um, but to me, what's interesting about this is that the the idea of a sports site stopping someone from covering a, that same sport somewhere else seems a little bit odd. If you would imagine, like, I'm trying to think of, like, a good example of someone who's prominent from another sport. Say Tony Romo. Like, the idea of CBS not letting Tony Romo commentate on another network uh, right after he leaves CBS would be kind of crazy. Uh, so the idea of Willie not being allowed to commentate on another network that also doesn't seem quite right. But with that being said, what's unique here is that Willie Saylor didn't get fired. Uh, he quit on his own. Uh, it, it's also worth noting that with the timing of it, it was right before wrestling season. So there's a lot of work that happens right before wrestling season where you're, we're gathering a lot of information. Uh, in his case, he does a lot of rankings, so there's a lot of information gathering on all the different wrestlers who are out there at each weight class. At, um, and, and then all the... For him, he also does high school rankings too, so that's a lot of... A lot of um, a lot of research that goes into that. So for him, he's doing all that research while he's being paid by Flow, uh, quits, uh, leaves on his own accord, and then posts up his own rankings behind a different paywall uh, on what's effectively a competitor. Is that right? And so to me, I, I don't see one side in this that's completely right and one side that's completely wrong. For for Willie, I, I can understand from his standpoint of wrestling is what he does. It's what he covers. Uh, he wasn't happy with his job. He left his job, and he wants to keep doing what he does. So, so I get that, but from... From Flo's standpoint, if you're paying a guy to create a bunch of content, he leaves and then immediately puts that content that he was creating under your dime while you were paying him. Uh, he uses he puts that content behind a different paywall, behind a competitor's paywall. Would you feel as though that's right, or would you feel like you need to have the law step in there? I, I can kind of see where they're coming from there, too. So to me, it, it's a little ugly in how this has been handled. Um, pretty much everyone who's commented on it publicly has not been particularly friendly about it. Uh, seems like Willie's well, in the in the process of burning a lot of bridges at Flow right now, and that's a little bit unfortunate because I liked I liked how he covered the sport when he was at Flow. You know, part of me was hoping that at some point maybe down the line he'd eventually go back there and there would sort of be like like a reunion there. 
and with the way things are going right now, it seems like that's a bit unlikely, but you never know as, as time goes along. But to me, this just isn't a story where it, it's clear that Flo is screwing Willie or that Willie um, deserves what he's getting from Flo or deserves everything he's getting from Flo. It's a bit of a complicated situation. Next thing to talk about that also uh, applies to wrestling is Kyle Dake, who was the 79-kilogram world champion this year. Him and uh, Alex Derringer were the top two guys in the world. Derringer is obviously a guy I just brought up in his results at 86 kilograms. Uh, but Kyle Dake, four-time NCAA Division One national champion, won at four different weight classes. Obviously, in freestyle, multiple-time world champion. So excellent freestyle wrestling, excellent from his feet. Um, but also by having the, those four folk-style national titles as well in, in college, it, it shows that he's got a skill set, at least in, in the grappling where he can be extremely effective in MMA, and he'd be one of the top guys to come over. There was a lot of talk about Jordan Burroughs coming over, especially after he had his match with Ben Askren. And Askren, when he went against Burroughs, obviously got destroyed 10 nothing. Kyle Dake's a guy who has lost to, who has lost to Jordan Burroughs more, often, more than he's beaten Jordan, but he, he does have a win over Jordan Burroughs. So that, that's the level he's at. He's an elite guy. So if he does decide to come over to MMA, there's an argument to be made that he could be, at least from an American standpoint, the best American wrestler to, to come over and do it, especially if he wanted to like commit to it. With that being said, I'm sure he can make enough money in wrestling where he can be comfortable with it and want to get punched in the face. What we saw from him was, was mitt work. Was it very good looking? I, I would say no. Uh, left hand kind of seemed robotic. He was fighting out of a southpaw stance, um, which is kind of throwing simple combinations as well. So it's not like after watching that, there's reason to believe that Kyle Dake, wow, this guy can really strike too, and that's without even thinking about his, thinking about his grappling. I, I don't think that he's been working on the striking this entire time and like trying to prepare for a transition to MMA. I, I think for him, it's just something where he took a fun little workout and then decided to post a little tweet, a little teaser video and say, hey, maybe after 2020 Olympics, I might end up getting into this. Uh, but to me, do I think that Kyle Dake is actually going to make that transition? You know, maybe we, maybe we might get one or two fights out of him, but I don't think that it would make sense for him or that he would end up transitioning to MMA full-time and actually trying to make a run at at like the UFC or getting to the highest levels. Uh, so while the idea of Kyle Dake being in MMA is fun, and while him posting up a video is extra fun, I, I don't know that I believe that he's actually going to do it. So at, at this point, I'm going to keep my, my expectations tempered. Last wrestling thing to talk about is Gable Stevenson, who was arrested for what was called like gross sexual conduct. It wasn't ever made specific what happened. What did come out is that the the so-called victim was penetrated with an object. The victim was anonymous, though, so it's unclear who this victim was and what exactly was meant by it. So that could either be like him and Dill Martinez, who was the other wrestler who was involved in this. Maybe like they they tag-teamed a girl and were, were putting something in her that she didn't want. That could have been what it was. It could also be that maybe they were with another wrestler and they were hazing him and forced him to put something somewhere he didn't want. Like, it's not exactly clear what what exactly happened here, but there was an arrest made. Um, they were released. Um, they had an investigation into it, felt that there was insufficient edi- insufficient evidence to, to file charges, so no, no charges were filed, and now that that's completely out of the way, he is now free to return to wrestling, so now Gable Stevenson has returned to the match, just had a match against San Diego State, or not San Diego, uh, South Dakota State, uh, and picked up a victory yesterday. So for Gable Stevenson, it's good for him to get this behind him. I made a video right after that story came out, and I didn't know that he was actually going to return right away. So for me, I was trying to think, well, is he going to just take an Olympic retro this year and, and look at just doing freestyle? Uh, or is he going to try to take another run at the NCAAs this year? He's going to have three more years of eligibility regardless. 
Uh, but it looks like he's definitely going to take a run at it this year. So that definitely complicates things at heavyweight, where before it looked like there was Anthony Kassar and then a, a handful of other people beneath him who would be fighting it out for the number two spot. Now it looks like Kassar and Gable are kind of like on this 1A, 1B tier, and then there's a handful of people on the tier below him. Uh, so it definitely complicates things and can definitely complicate, complicate things for Iowa, where there might have been some hope that a guy like Anthony Cassiope could could get it, could garner a lot of points there. Um, while Anthony Kassar, you'd figure he's probably going to make the finals regardless. So the lost points of having Gable Stevenson at heavyweight for Iowa might be more than what Penn State loses while Kassar is still there, especially if Kassar is able to continue beating Gable Stevenson. So that could be really big for Penn State in the team race, and a team race that's expected to be pretty close. But at this point, for Gable, glad it's over. Kind of unfortunate for him that he got held out so long for something he, he wasn't guilty of or even charged for. Uh, kind of on the downsides of every, every time that there's an allegation that you have to hold someone out of something and wait until the, everything clears. This is a very slow process. And for him, fortunately, it doesn't look like the consequences are going to be that bad for him. Uh, granted, some people may always hold this against him, even though he didn't do anything wrong here. Some people might always think of him as a as a rapist, even if this might not have even been like rape-related. Maybe this was just like a hazing thing. Uh, and it, it, regardless of what it was, he was cleared of it regardless. But in that way, it's not good for him that people are going to be going to be tying that to him when it seems like he didn't do anything wrong. But for him, he can finally get back to wrestling, wrestling for Minnesota, and uh, at least at least in that way, I, I'd say it's good for him. Um, a couple more topics to talk about. Uh, last one for the UFC specifically is going to be an announcement of a handful of releases they had, so I'll just go through the list and um, talk about each of them. So Rostam Akman, uh, a UFC welterweight who was 6-2, uh, 0-2 in the UFC, so he was 6-0 prior to making it in the UFC. Um, but he was released recently. Uh, his last loss was to Jake Matthews. Uh, so didn't really make any noise at welterweight, and welterweight's a pretty deep division as it is. Uh, Alan Crowder, who had that win by DQ over Greg Hardy after coming off of the Contender Series, tough tough going after that. Now, technically, he didn't get released. He, he had a couple knockout losses, including a really bad one to Yarzina Rosenstrike, and I guess he's had some concussion issues with that as well. Uh, so for that reason, he decided to retire rather than be released, but it seemed like he was likely to be released um, pretty soon anyway. Uh, but for him, if, if he is having concussion problems, he would you would rather that he's able to retire. And I remember prior to that Greg Hardy fight, there were some, some interviews where, where he was going on and talking about his background. It sounds like he has his own gym. So at least for him, even though he won't be fighting in the UFC, he does have another income stream that he can rely on. So kind of an unfortunate way to end it, but at least he, he's got something to fall back on. Uh, then Tay Edwards, who came off the Contender Series, was 6-1 and one, heading into the UFC, lost both fights, and now he's at 6-3. and three. Uh, Former Arizona State wrestler, um... But he has a couple of losses to Don Madge, who is that really good South South African kickboxer who had been working with Cyborg a little bit, and uh, Dennis Bermudez. Jason Gonzalez, who is 11-5 heading into the UFC, is now 1-3 in the UFC, or is 11-5 now. Um, outside the UFC, he's 10-2. Um, not a great uh, not a great run in the UFC for him. He did have a fight of the night, a uh, fight with Gregor Gillespie, but he also had a loss to, Jason, or to Jim Miller, so things didn't go great for him. Kurt Hollibaugh has had a really rough time in the UFC. Outside the UFC, he's been pretty good. So outside the UFC, he's 17-3. and In the UFC, he's 0-4, so 17-7 and overall. Um, but he's lost to everyone. He's fought in the octagon, so he's lost to Brownie Barcelos. He's lost to Shane Burgos. He's lost to Thiago Moises. Um, and so the UFC felt like, with the, with four different chances in the UFC and all of them being losses, um, now it's the time to cut their losses with him. We also have Daryl Horcher. Uh, most famous for stepping in to fight against Khabib Nurmagomedov. Really rough fight for him. Ended up losing that one. Um, but he 
he then had three more chances, or he had three more fights in the UFC. He did pick up a win at one point, uh, beat Devin Powell by split decision, but then also lost to Scott Holtzman and Roosevelt Roberts. Sergio Marias was released, uh, not surprisingly, after as bad as his last performance was against James Krause. At one point, he was ranked in the UFC. Um, his, his total record in the UFC actually isn't all that bad at 8-5-1, uh, but recently he hasn't looked great. He's uh, gassed out pretty quickly in his fights. Hasn't been super effective at getting the fight to the ground. And on the feet, though, he does throw a lot of wild strikes. Um, again, with the gas being an issue, that can sort of fall away as well. Lauren Mueller from Flyweight, she was five or she was four zero heading into the UFC. Went one and three in the UFC, so now she's five and three. Uh, but she was the first female signee off of the Dana White Contender Series, uh, but just didn't do very well in the UFC. Her last fight came to uh, her last fight was a loss against JJ Aldrich. Uh, a couple more people to to bring up that were recently removed from the UFC. We have Zach Otto who is the head coach at Pura Vida BJJ in um, Wisconsin. 4-4 four four in the UFC, 17-7 and seven total in MMA, so 13-3 and three outside the UFC, 4-4 uh, four four in the UFC. Um, his wins in the UFC included um, Josh Berkman, Mike Pyle, Dwight Grant, and Kichi Kunimoto. Uh, losses were against Sergio Marais, Lee Jingling, Sage Northcutt, surprisingly, and Alex Morono. Boston Salmon, uh, great name, not a great UFC career, though. Um, he was 0-2 in the UFC. Uh, so he lost to Rayoni Barcelos. Um, or he, I guess he got injured before fighting Barcelos. Um, but he lost to Calataja and Randy Costa. And then Alan Zuniga, um, 0-1 in the UFC, was 13-0 outside the UFC. So I guess they didn't really keep him around all that long. Um, but he lost to John Gunther by majority decision. And I guess they decided they didn't want to keep him around past that. I guess he just wasn't active enough. So they felt like that was grounds for a release. So, last thing to talk about is Rory McDonald. He was with Bellator, was a former Bellator champion, and after going through the tournament and losing his title in the in the tournament finals to or to Douglas Lima, I guess at that point his, his contract had run out. Now, granted, had he won that fight, then they would have had to have kept him around on the champions clause, but because he lost at that point, they were trying to decide whether or not it was worth keeping him around. Now, Rory McDonald's was signed at a time when Bellator was trying to, to snag, snag some big names from the UFC. And one of the things that I kind of figure was the case when they signed him, and I, I think at this point it seems to be confirmed, is that they overpaid for him relative to what his value is. Now, again, for an MMA fighter, your value is based on the amount of money you're able to bring in because you, you can be a fantastic fighter, but if you sell $1,000 in tickets and make like $5,000 like off of your distribution, you can't pay someone $10,000. Like You're going to lose a crap load of money. Obviously, scale those numbers up. Um, you think about the cost for what, what it was costing the Bellator to, to put Roy McDonald out there and have him fight relative to the money they were making at the gate and the money they were able to make um, off the distribution. It, it sort of made it tough. And I, I guess for them, after the contract was up, they felt like, look, given what we're paying him right now, we don't get a great return on our investment. It'd be sort of rough for us to, to come back to him with an offer that was significantly lower than what we'd been paying him before. So I guess at that point, like, you know what, I guess... We're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Let's just hope he finds a, a better option and signs with them. And that's when Rory McDonald signed with the PFL and felt like that was a good option for him. Uh, PFL, their pay is just based off of where you finish rather than how much you sell, which I would argue is not a great business model. They've been able to survive as long as they have because they've been able to get a lot of venture venture capital funding. Uh, but I don't know if they're profitable at all. I, I find it hard to believe that they are. It doesn't seem like their ratings are all that good. It doesn't seem like they're selling out really big venues. Uh, it doesn't even sell, seem like they're selling out the venues that they're in right now. So... For them, it seems like they have enough funding where they're they're going to run it through and go back go again next year. They're they're obviously going through their finals right now, 
Um, but for Roy McDonald, good opportunity for him in that if he's able to get the win, a uh, similar opportunity to what he had at the Belter tournament where a million dollars was on the line for winning it. Uh, but the level of competition should be significantly lower, so it'll be a good opportunity for him. But as far as the PFL goes, I don't know if this is a sign that they're like in, in a great state of improvement or that they're in a position to actually like make big moves in the MMA world. I, I just think that they've they've been able to get a lot of investment money and a lot of the money that they've been spending has been from investment, but I don't know if they're actually a, a very profitable company or they're a company that I see doing great in, in the years to come. So that covers it for this week. Uh, I'm sure given the amount of things that popped up this week, there will be other things that pop up over the course of the next week, and I'll have plenty to talk about then. I'm sure I'll be previewing the Midlands Wrestling Tournament that will be going on then. I'll probably be previewing the, Southern, previewing the Southern Scuffle as well. And I'm sure there will be some other big fights that are announced uh, in the near future, probably at Medway, given the fact that we just got that Whitaker fight. So I'll be talking about that as well if that's what ends up happening. Uh, so I guess the last thing to mention is that if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes. You can subscribe to it on Google Podcast. Uh, I've got a page on Anchor, which has a handful of other links. So I think Spotify is one of them and a few others. Uh, so a lot of different places you can find this podcast if you want to subscribe to it just for the audio link. That's what I typically like to do. I, I tend to listen to podcasts more just audio only rather than watching video. But if you like the video, then you can watch this video on YouTube as well. You can watch it on uh, BitChute. And if you want to get notifications when more come up, uh, I would obviously encourage you to subscribe. So subscribe to the, the audio podcast if that's how you listen to it. If you're on YouTube or BitChute, you'll get the podcast, but you also get some videos throughout the week. So I did a handful of videos this week. I did a video on the Derek Lewis thing where I actually showed the video of him fighting in the gym. I did a video on Bernie Sanders where I was going through an article for, or on uh, Kevin Lee with the Bernie Sanders thing where I was going through an article on that. Uh, so if you want those videos as well, those are also a part of the YouTube and BitChute um, subscriptions as well. So I would encourage you to do that.